Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, January the 31st, 2022. It is currently 4.16 p.m. Central Time. And once again, I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas. And I know what some of you may be thinking. Wait a minute. It's Monday. He usually takes Monday off. Well, I don't always take Monday off, but most of the time, if I'm going to take a day off, Monday typically is the day, or at least in theory, Monday is supposed to be the day I take off because after doing hours and hours and hours of teaching on a Sunday, by the time I get home on Sunday evening, you don't even understand how wiped out I am. I am usually just like, wow, I I, I don't think I can say another word for at least a few minutes. <laughs> okay. No, I, I usually feel wiped out. So I try to take Monday off, but I could not do that today because right now outside it's 70 degrees. It looks wonderful. It looks great, but I'm getting all of these weather alerts telling me that a, we're now in a winter storm watch, which could move into a winter storm warning. And somewhere between Tuesday and Thursday, it could be, and I, when I say a winter storm warning, it's, it's a winter storm warning. You got to think Texas, all right? It's not going to be probably what you've experienced depending on where you live. It means it's going to get cold and probably the biggest problem is possibly ice on the road. And when that happens here in Texas, that shuts everything down. So I don't want to be in a situation where I'm sitting at my house on Wednesday going, oh, I need to try to get out to the church. What do I do? Do I attempt to try to get out there? And so I, I didn't want to be in a situation where I took Monday off. Sometimes Tuesday doesn't work out. Then I can't be here Wednesday. Maybe I can't be here Thursday. And basically I can't do anything until possibly Friday. I didn't want to be in a situation like that because it would bother me greatly. So I wanted to come out here this afternoon and try to give you some, hopefully some good teaching, something to really get you something to think about that if I can't be here for the next couple of days, that I, I feel like I did not let down anyone who listens to this podcast. And, and, I, and I try to provide you as much spiritual food as possible. Let, let Think of this podcast today as like, oh, there's a big storm coming and you run to the store and you try to grab everything you're going to need, all of your provisions and food and everything. Think of this as this is kind of like a podcast here to give you as much spiritual food as possible to sustain you through the rest of the week. Now, I understand you can get spiritual food from all kinds of other sources. Obviously, I know that. In many cases, better spiritual food than even I can provide. But I still feel I have a responsibility to do what I can, not only for everyone else, but obviously very important. Most important are the people who actually attend this church. So I want to make sure that if we can't have church Wednesday, that they can just open up the app and go, well, he did about five hours of teaching. I'm set for this Wednesday night. Or if they if they can't leave their house because of uh, you know bad weather conditions, they can go. Well, my pastor gave me four or five hours of of spiritual food. Now I don't know if I'm going to be able to put that many hours together in this afternoon, but I'm going whatever I can put together. Hopefully, it will be sufficient for everyone. So that's why I'm here. It's nice outside. 
But bad weather is coming. And so what we're going to do is forget about the weather. And we're going to focus on a very, well, actually, a storm is coming, all right? We, we, in fact, we've already been in a spiritual storm because of the subject we're going to be talking about. We're going to find ourselves in the midst of another spiritual, we're going to find ourselves in the midst of a spiritual storm because of what we're going to be talking about. Now, here's what I need you to do, all right? I need you to put on your thinking caps. I need you to listen to me carefully And I need you to listen to everything I have to say before you start trying to either argue or disagreeing with me, right? Because I know this is going to be somewhat, it's going to be, it's going to be a very different approach to a very well-known verse, a verse that we have been talking, we talked about all last week in our Bible study exercise, right? And that's why I'm adding another study to that Bible study exercise. All last week, we studied the subject of temptation using Genesis chapter 39. We talked all about temptation. And in our study of temptation, we found ourselves looking at a very, very famous verse, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where we read these words. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. That is a very famous verse on temptation. And we we spent a lot, we spent over two hours of me just talking about all of the difficulties with the verse, looking at how many commentaries handle the verse and how they completely ignore the possible problems. They just say, here's the answer. And you're like, wonderful. But what they, the answer they provide, listen to me carefully, doesn't really correspond with the reality that Christians live. Pastors and commentators take 1 Corinthians 10, 13. They provide an explanation, but the explanation they provide has no connection to the reality that Christians actually live and experience. And that should make everyone go, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to make any sense. You're telling me this is the way it is, but I know the way it is because of how, of what I experience, what we experience within every church, within the lives of Christians all around the world, and what we have seen in 2,000 years of church history. So maybe we haven't been looking at this verse correctly. So for the next, I don't know how long this is going to take, we are going to really dig into 1 Corinthians 10, and I'm going to provide what I believe is a the I think the best understanding that is possible for this verse, the best interpretation of this verse. I've heard all the others, and I just, I can't accept them. I don't, I just disagree with them. And you're going to see why. And I know immediately you're going to be, but, 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 but hey, you can't be right. Well, all I'm going to say, if, if everyone else is right, we can test it. Okay, it can be tested, all right? And I think uh, if the other interpretations after they are tested, they will prove it. They will be proven to be fraudulent. They will, they'll just prove, be proven not to actually work, all right? But hear me out and listen carefully. So are you ready? Now, if you happen to be listening live on this Monday afternoon, feel free at any point to uh, jump into the chat. You just hit the little chat icon, 
and you can ask a question. You can ask for clarification. You can ask for me to repeat something. And then when we get close to the end, if you have any objection, you can then post it then, and then I will do my very best. We may even extend the time of this live broadcast to try to handle any objections. If for some reason you're not listening to me live, then obviously you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. What, what's, uh, not very many people, when I, I've provided all of the possible issues with 1 Corinthians 10, 13, not a lot of people were quick to email me going, well, this is what I think it means. Only one person sent me an explanation of what they of what they were trying to work out. And I think they're onto something. I think they're definitely onto something. And this is going to be, in a sense, taking my ideas and a little bit of their ideas and really trying to flesh them out into something that I think actually works. But I think most people were just like, well, either they just completely disagreed with me, uh, that, they're, that they don't perceive there's a problem in 1 Corinthians 10, or they saw the problem but they could not figure out a solution, so they didn't bother to email me, which I, I hope I hope that they are at least still thinking about it and struggling with it because this is a very important issue. So are you ready, all right? A storm is coming to this in the middle of nowhere, Texas. We got a winter storm coming to this area, but right now we're gonna deal with another storm, and that's the storm of 1 Corinthians 10 13. And this storm, I believe, has been very devastating and destructive to the lives of many Christians because they've been promised something that I don't think once they begin to try to live out their Christian life, they find out those promises don't actually work the way they were they were told. And I think that's what makes this storm around this verse so devastating. All right, so are we ready? All right, I grab, have my journal right here. And this is what how I broke this down, all right? So we have 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And I think the first thing we need to do when we read 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is we just need to acknowledge what it seems to be saying, right? What it seems to be saying. When I read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, what it seems to be saying is obviously something that most people see and most people think is clear. And, and, and because it seems to say this, most people don't perceive there's a problem. But let's just state it so that everyone, I, that, that we can all just acknowledge it. I, I don't have to state this as, so that you'll go, oh, I've never seen that. I'm going to state this because you're going to be like, well, obviously that's what it seems to say. And you're going to tell me because that's what it says. But let's just, let's just go ahead and establish this. You ready? Let me read it to you one more time. First Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. All right. So the first thing it seems to be saying, and it seems to be clear, is that any temptation you experience, it's nothing. It's nothing special. It's nothing supernatural. It's going to be common, just like everyone else has experienced it. You don't face any new temptation. All the temptations we experience have been common to people as since the fall. All right. That seems to be to be pretty straightforward. God is faithful. 
right? That seems to be a God is faithful. You can, you can count on God. God is faithful, right? He's trustworthy. All right, here we go. Who will, speaking of God, not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able? Now, the way this is typically understood is that God is not going to allow any temptation to come to you. He is faithful and God is not going to let you be tempted above what you are able to handle. In other words, whatever temptation comes into your life, you have the ability to handle it. You have the ability to resist it. Therefore, implying just already right here that you don't have to sin. You don't have to sin. Now, some people say, well, the word temptation here should be trial. So then some people will say, whatever trial you experience, whatever trial, you can handle it in and of yourself. You can, you can, stand, you can stand against it. All right, next. But with the temptation, also make a way to escape. That God is not going to let you be tempted above what you're able to handle. And then with that temptation, he's going to give you a way to escape it that you may be able to bear it. Now, there's been a, so that it's what it seems to be saying, or at least clearly giving an indication is that you can resist temptation. You don't have to sin. You don't have to fall into sin. You can say no. That's what it seems to be saying. And that no matter how bad, or if you go with the fact that this is not referring to an enticement to sin, but just trial and tribulation, that this is saying that no matter how bad of tragedy, trial, or tribulation comes into your life, God is not going to give you one beyond your ability to handle it. So you should always respond to trials and tribulation, no matter how bad, how tragic, how devastating, in such a way that does not lead to any sin or any problems, because you actually have the ability to handle it correctly and not handle it in an incorrect way. You should always handle it in a way that glorifies God and you do not sin in it. And that God's going to give you a way to escape that trial so that you can bear it and you can handle it. So either way, it's going to be the, the, the implication of what it seems to be saying is that no matter what comes into your life, an enticement to sin or trial and trouble, you can handle it. You don't have to sin. You don't have to stumble. You don't have to fall. That's what it appears to be saying, right? That's what it seems to be saying. In fact, we could say that this, what it seems to be saying is that it is possible for you not to sin, not to stumble, not to fall, almost at least implying the possibility that there can be Christians who do not sin, who do not stumble, who do not fall. Now, that's, that's a massive statement. That's what it seems to be saying. But what does reality show us? So number one, what does it seem to be saying? It seems to be implying that no trial, no trouble, no enticement to sin can cause you to stumble and fall, fall because God is going to keep anything coming into you that you cannot handle. He's going to give you a way to escape so that you can bear it. Therefore, you don't have to fall. Therefore, sinless perfection is possible. Now, what does reality show us? Well, everyone knows that the reality around us is the fact that 
no one is perfect. 2,000 years, the only person who's ever been perfect is, well, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who took upon human flesh. He was perfect, but everyone else, we sin. We sin in thought, we sin in word, we sin in action, we sin in attitude. Over and 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 over again. So if this verse is saying, hey guys, you don't have to sin, well then why do we just keep sinning? Why can we just say, I'll I'll just stop sinning. You say, well, you have your sinful nature. Well, yeah, I may have a sinful nature, but God is still not going to give me more than I can handle. So clearly he doesn't allow that sinful nature to stop me, to cause me to sin because I can say no to it according to this implication, right? According to the way people read 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So you'd almost have to argue that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 can only occur because God gets rid of our sinful nature. Well, then therefore we should be able to do so. But the reality is we sin and we sin and we sin and we sin. Churches split, Christian marriages fall apart. There's suffering, there's backbiting, there's gossip, there's slander, there's sin of all different kinds and types. It is the reality of the Christian world. It's been that way for since the beginning. It's been, the reality of sin has been present in those who follow God since the fall. Just start reading the Bible. There's God's people, they sin. There's God's people, they're falling into sin. There's God's people, they're committing idolatry. There's God's people, they're committing sexual sin. There's God's people, they're slandering, gossip. They're, they're, they're not showing, they're not doing uh, what is right and just over and over and over and over and over and over again. Anyone who reads their Bible, it's all, that's what you see on every page. No matter how great or godly the person may appear to be, we find them falling into sin over and over and over again. Why is that? So what it seems to be saying is that no matter what you experience, trial, trouble, or, or an enticement to sin, you, God's not, God is controlling it. He's not going to give you more than you can handle, and he's going to give you a way of escape. You can bear it, and they seem to interpret that as meaning you don't have to sin. What reality shows us is that we sin and we sin and we sin. So how do we handle this? How do we handle this apparent Difficulty, this apparent contradiction. Well, what are some possible solutions? What are some possible solutions? Well, here's a couple of possible solutions. We can stop sinning. And if we don't, it's probably because we're not saved. Hey, you actually have the ability, but if you can't, then that means you're probably not saved. Because if you were saved, then you would obviously not want to sin and you would stop sinning because God's not going to give you more than you can handle. He gives you a way of escape. You can bear it. You don't have to. So then you would call into question people's salvation. That's one possible solution. No, this is true. But the reason nobody can live it out is because they're not saved. That is a massive problem. That's That's a massive problem. That's a massive problem. Some people try to say, well, the solution is, well, we could, we could be sinless, but nobody wants to, right? Because we keep choosing to go again. Well, if nobody wants to, that would be a problem because God is not going to, that want to is not greater than our ability to say no to it because the text says God is not going to give you more than you can handle, So then that sinful nature, he would reduce the power of the sinful nature so that you could say no to it. So 
you can't just say, well, we don't want to. That, do, that doesn't work. So, you, so the only real solution is this is true. And the reason nobody does it is because nobody is saved. And that doesn't really work very well. That doesn't work. What most people do is try to say, hey, you don't have to sin. You have the ability not to sin. You have the power of God to keep you from sin. You can do it. And then they always throw in, check the small print. However, you're you're not going to be perfect and you're still going to sin. Well, wait a minute. You just promised me that I didn't have to. Now you're telling me. And some people just don't even bother to try to handle this. So what, what is another possible solution? Maybe we need a different approach to the passage. Maybe, maybe what is needed here is a, is a different approach to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Maybe what we need is to figure out how we can interpret this verse that somewhat stays true to the language and to the rest of the Bible and is somewhat consistent with the reality that we see in everyone's lives. Because the reality is people sin. It's just the reality. I mean, you can... You, we can spend all day trying to, to talk and, and, and deny it, but there's sin and there's sin and there's sin. Now, you may argue, well, I don't commit these big sins and you have your little list, but I'm going to just say there's, there's sin is any, any failure to, to uh, any, any falling short of God's standard. And God tells you to be holy for he is holy. You fall short of that every single day. So why would he give you a standard that you're not able to keep? Because according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there hath no temptation taking you, but it's common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. That means you would be able to keep every command. And any temptation to break a command, you're able to keep it. Well, we clearly know that that just doesn't work. Clearly something, there's a disconnect somewhere. Clearly, we're misunderstanding this somewhere. Now, I'm going to spend, that's 22 minutes to just kind of establish what I want you to see. This, what the verse seems to be saying, how people, some possible solutions, there really isn't any good possible solution. So we need a different approach. So I'm going to spend the rest of this time offering a different approach. I want you to think this through carefully, all right? carefully. Here we go. First, let's just start breaking the verse down. Let's just start breaking it down into its individual parts. All right. First Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Now, the very first thing that's established in this verse is that temptation is common to everyone. That temptation, we're all going to be tempted, and the temptations we face are common to people going throughout, going all the way back to after the fall, going all the way back. In fact, you could go all the way back to the fall itself. But but as, as, as long as people have been tempted, those temptations are common, and they happen in generation after generation after generation, year after year after year, person after person after person. I want you to just think about that right there. If everyone, if temptation is common and and people keep falling into sin over and 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 over again, that that reality can't be ignored when you interpret the rest of this verse. I think starting right there is very important. Hey, temptation is common. 
And if you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 10, you'll see that he already shows us how it's been common in the lives of, well, the nation of Israel. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they did all eat the same spiritual meat and they did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. All right, so, so hey, temptation, it's common to everyone, that temptation. And now, but, but if we stop for a minute, let's go back and let's consider the context here and how temptation is common because this is very important and it's very eye-opening. All right, Israel. Israel. I want you to, first, it kind of establishes, hey, think about Israel and think about all the blessings they had, right? They were delivered by the power of God in the most visible way possible from the bondage of Egypt. I mean, therefore, there's no question that God exists. They see his power, all the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, what they experience is something that's hard for us to even comprehend. They see miracles in the most dramatic way possible. You got the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea. You've got all of that. Everything that happens there is just absolutely amazing. And so they, uh, so they were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They experienced the, the most amazing thing, walking through the Red Sea on dry land. I mean, the sea parted. They see God's miracle. They are delivered by the power of God. And in a sense, they were all baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea. And they did all eat the same spiritual meat. And they did all, did all drink the same spiritual drink. Uh, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Not only did they experience supernatural and powerful deliverance, they experienced supernatural and powerful provision. They experienced supernatural and powerful deliverance and they experienced supernatural and powerful provision. I mean, that they've got, I mean, you want to talk about having a successful spiritual life. They, they have seen things that we would only dream of. They, they have seen and experienced things that we can only imagine when we read the scriptures about them. But even though they have all of those things, verse five, but many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Even after being mightily and supernaturally delivered, even after being mightily and supernaturally provided for, they still were not pleasing to God. They still fell into sin and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Even though they experienced all of that, they lusted after evil things. Well, wait, wait, why? Why would God give them a temptation that they could not resist? Well, no, you know, they could have. Well, so you're saying they could have resisted it, but they just couldn't figure out how to do it. And you go from all the way back to Israel and Moses. And now here we are at the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And if you read everything leading up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, guess what we have found out and going on in this church? Sin, 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 
sin. There's division is in the church. There's sexual sin. There is problem after problem after problem in the church of Corinth. But but so so in other words, temptation to sin and sin is common to all people. Hey, hey, look, you're being tempted. It's common. Go back, and he's already given us in the in the preceding verses how common it was to Israel. They lusted after evil things. Look at verse seven. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. They 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 became idolaters. They lusted after evil things, and they became idolaters. There was sin. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. They were fornicators. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all these things happened unto them for ensamples or examples to us. So that is written uh, for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, lest him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. Remember them? Look, what do you see in their entire history? You see temptation. You see sin. You see judgment, chastisement, however you want to to phrase it. So he's like, hey guys, you in Church of Corinth, don't think you've got it all figured out. And then he goes on to tell them, hey, any temptation that comes upon you, it's common. It's common. I want you to just realize in the entire history of God's people, Temptation is common. Sin is common. So we we can't just ignore all of that sin reality when we get to this verse. So the first thing we have to just realize, sin is common. Common temptations to all. Temptation is common to all. That's the first part of breaking this down. Next. Temptation, you can count on it. It's going to happen. It's going to be the same temptations that people experienced in the past. And guess what? You know how people handled those temptations in the past? Over and over and over, you see records of them falling into sin. But God is faithful. All right. Temptation is common. The next thing this verse wants us to understand, God is faithful. God is faithful. I think that may be the key here, right? Because when we look back, in the verses that proceed, Israel didn't prove to be faithful because they fell into sin and fell into sin. But even though they fell into sin, God is faithful. Hey, to the church of Corinth, you've continued to sin. God is faithful. To you and to me, no, look, no matter how long we've been Christians, we continue to sin. God is faithful. We're going to face temptations and they're going to be the same temptations that people have experienced for well over 2,000 years. Entire, in fact, in the entirety of human history. But God is faithful. So temptation is common. God is faithful. And then the next one is this. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able? Now, this speaks of God's sovereignty. He's controlling the temptation, even if we want to get into a whole discussion about trial or tribulation. Whatever it is, God is the one in charge of it. And God is not is going to only allow that to come into your life, that you are able. Able to do what? That's the question. We interpret that as able to not sin. 
able to not fall. Is that a correct understanding of it? Let's see how other translations handle this idea of being able, all right? Let's see how others handle this. All right, I'm going to go to uh, verse 13. Here we go. Other translations state it this way. No temptation is ex- has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful and will let you not will let will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So what you can bear, what you are able. Able to do what? Bear it in what way? New Living Translation. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will, he will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. So whatever temptation he allows, you're able, you can bear it, you can stand it. Okay, but exactly what does that mean? Does that mean, okay, you can bear it, you can stand it, you're able to just not sin and not fall? Therefore, you're able to be sinless and perfect? Is that what that is saying? Or do we understand this able, stand, bear it in a different way? ESV, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So, so in other words, he, he, this is your, he's not going to let you be tempted to beyond your ability, but your ability to do what? Your ability not to sin? Your ability to be sinless and perfect? What ability do you have? Berean Study Bible. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Berean Literal Bible. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able you're getting the basic idea and all of these verses. So let's go to the Amplified Bible. No temptation, regardless of its source, has overtaken or enticed you that is not common to human experience, for, for, nor is any temptation unusual or beyond human resistance. Now, this seeming to imply that, that it's not beyond your ability to resist it. Wow, there seems to be a lot of different ideas here. Let, let's go to the Greek and see what we can find here. I'm going to go to the Blue Letter Bible app. I'm going to click on 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. All right, I'm going to open up interlinear. Right? So uh, temptation, that, that, that's taken, which is common. God is faithful, who, who will not suffer you to be tempted above. You are a, ye are able. The Greek word here for this, Ye are able is this. Strong's G, 1410, dunamai, 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 dunamai. Now, dunamai, you almost think dunamai, okay, that seems some kind of power maybe. Let's just see, dunamai, it's used 210 times, all right? It's 100 times could, uh, uh, cannot, be able May, might, able. Not not a lot of help there. Strong's definition. Deutemai, to be able or or possible, be able, could, may, might, be possible, be of power. 
So it's uh, you're, you're able, you're possible. It, it's like okay, you can you can do something with this. Okay, but what what can I do? What am I able to do? What am I what what what's possible here? The outline of biblical usage to be able have power rather by virtue of one's own ability and resources or of a state of mind or through favorable circumstances or per, or by permission of law or custom to be able to do something to be capable strong and powerful right? none of that is, it's like the, the key is we 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 hear this and we're like okay capable power able and what we say is okay temptation is common God controls the temptation of like, he only gives you what you, you have the power, you have the ability to do what with. We infer in our minds, able to just not sin, able to not fall. Well, what ability do we possess? Here's the question I have for you. What ability do you have as a Christian? Now, some Christians believe they now have the ability to say no to sin, which would mean there should be sinless Christians. And we've yet to see one or experience one other than Jesus Christ. So, and again, if we have the ability to be sinless, then you're saying, so why did Jesus even need to come? He just give us the power and we're like, okay, we'll, we'll save ourselves by keeping the law. But it doesn't work that way. So... What ability? That's really what it comes down to. So let's go through this again. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I'm just breaking this down because we got we to break it down as much as possible. All right, so all temptation is common, but when we look at how common temptation is, and if we just go back into the original context, we see how common it was in Israel, and guess what we see over and over and over? Failure, 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 failure. That, we cannot ignore that in understanding this. But God is faithful, and he's not going to give you a temptation that is beyond your ability. What ability do I possess? An ability to do what with? Not sin. Those are questions that we would have. Next, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. Now, here's the question. So the way we typically preach this, okay, God, because temptation is common to everyone. God is faithful. He controls the temptation that comes into your life and he doesn't give you one that's beyond your ability. And that's typically preached as your ability to not sin. But then at the same time, he's also going to give you a way to escape it. Well, I don't know why I need to escape it if I have the ability to say no to it, but he gives me some kind of way of escape. But to escape what? Escape the temptation? Escape the consequences of of sin? What what am I escaping? So let's just look up, in fact, let's look up, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll read this in all the English translations to see how they handle the word escape here, right? So back to... Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a number of, of different translations. Here we go. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will provide a way so that you can endure it. 
All right, that doesn't much say anything about escaping as much as enduring it. The New Living Translation. The temptations in life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure it. So he's going to show you a way out so that you can endure the temptation. But why do I need a way out if I have the ability to keep myself from it? Okay, ESV. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Well, I, I, that's kind of confusing to me. If, if I'm escaping it, then, what, then I'm not enduring it, right? Enduring it seems to be that I'm sitting, sitting there experiencing it. If I can simply escape it. So is he saying that he's going to give me an ability to take the escape so that I can endure it by escaping from it? What, what, what is, what's the escape here? Um, we'll go with the Amplified Bible. No temptation, regardless of its source, has overtaken or enticed you. That is not common to human experience, nor, nor is any temptation unusual or beyond human resistance. But God is faithful to his word. He is compassionate and trustworthy, and he will not let, let you be tempted beyond your ability to resist. But along with the temptation, he has in the past and is now and will always provide the way out as well. The way out. What, what, what's the way of escape? He provides for us. Now, if we look up the Greek here for escape, I'm going to go back to the Blue Letter Bible app. I'm going to look up verse 13. Let's look up the word escape. All right. So there's able, a way of escape. That's this Greek word. All right. It's this. Strong's G, 1545. Ekbasis. 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 Now, ekbasis is used two times, and it's used way of escape or end. Ekbasis means um, meaning to go out and exit, end way to escape. The outline of biblical usage and uh, egress, way out, uh, exit, applied figuratively to the way of escape from temptation. The issue referring to the end of one's life refers not only to the end of physical life, but the manner in which they uh, they closed a well-spent life as exhibited by their spirit and dying. Ekbasis, there's not a lot of, uh, a lot of, there's not a lot of help there from the Greek. Ekbasis means a way out. So God keeps, he, he controls what temptation comes into your life and that you have some kind of ability, uh, some uh, ability to bear it, but we don't really know exactly what that, we, we think we know what that means, but he's also going to give you a way of escape and then this brings us to the third. So let's go through these again. All right. First, temptation your temptation is common. Everyone's going to experience. But when we look through uh, how everyone has experienced temptation, what we see is sin, 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 sin throughout the whole Bible from, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Right? You don't see, oh, here's this pocket of people who were sinless and perfect. So nobody seems to figure out the, the secret and how to do this. All right. If we understand it this way. Um, God is faithful. That part everyone can agree on. Able, some kind of ability. We don't know escape. We don't know escape in what way. And then the last thing is the King James uses the word to bear it. Let me read it again. 
Um, there hath no temptation taken to you, but such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above uh, that ye are able, but with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. To bear it. Now, the other translations, that last part, when they say bear it, they translate it this way. To endure it, endure it, stand up under it, endure it, to bear it, to bear it, to endure it, to endure it, um, and to endure it. So, uh, it's all to bear it or to endure it. Let's, let's, what is the Greek phrase? Does it help us at all? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, back to the interlinear. And if we go all the way down, to bear it. It's this uh, Greek word here. Strong's G, 5297. Hupafero. 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 Now, hupafero is used three times. Endure, bear. It means to bear from underneath, to undergo hardship, bear, endure. To bear by being under, bear up, to bear patiently, to endure. So, so none of that really, like, we, we read those words and we just, we just come running in there going, okay, this what this means, guys, is that when you're tempted, God is not going to give you a temptation beyond your ability and you don't have to sin. He's going to give you a way to escape so you can bear all temptation, you can endure all temptation because you can escape it and you can resist it and you can say no to it because you have an ability. So therefore, people can be sinless. The only problem is it doesn't meet reality. So, so what is a possible answer? I know it's 45 minutes just breaking this down, but I don't, want, I, I don't want anyone to accuse me of not being looking at the text. So does the, context, does the context offer any help? And I think we get our first clue, I think in a roundabout way, in the escape idea, but I, I think we kind of get an idea of, if you think about it, I think we can kind of get an idea that God is faithful. I think that's the first thing we have to do. I think that's the first clue. God is faithful. God is faithful in all of this. All right. And then when we look at able, escape, bear it, we know that clearly we can't. That can't mean that I have the ability to never sin because that doesn't work. It doesn't mean that that every for every temptation. There's just an easy escape hatch and I never have to sin because that doesn't seem to work and that I can endure it. Well, why am I enduring it if I can just say no to it and I can escape from it? It, it, it just, that, there seems to be like, there's at least enough questions here that to, should make you dig a little deeper and go, ah, I don't know. So then I started thinking about it. Well, wait a minute. Context, that's, that's what we always go to, right? Context is king. So let's look at the context. Context. Now, I've already gone through the context once because I wanted you to start thinking this way. Maybe now the light bulb will come on. All right, here we go. We are given in 1 Corinthians 10, the context is Israel. We see their mighty deliverance, supernatural deliverance, and we see the mighty and supernatural provision which they experience. Yet they sin. And God is not happy with them. They lust. They're idolaters. They're fornicators. And, and one day, three and 20,000 fell. So they, they sin 
and there is judgment and there is destruction. So where is ability? Where is escape? Where is enduring it? Like, how do we understand this? And then I think the next verse to me is where the light starts coming on. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, now we could go back to verse eight, but nine and 10 immediately made me go, oh, I know the historical context for these verses. Yeah, yeah, there was destruction, but guess what happens here? There is escape. There is escape in these verses. There, there is something that, that, that happens to help them escape, help them to endure it, help them to get through it. And in all the cases, it doesn't prove anything about the people. It proves that God is faithful. So we need to look at these contexts, and, and then I think you'll see what I am referring to here. All right, here we go. First, let's deal with the fact that they were destroyed by serpents. That takes us to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. That takes us to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Numbers, chapter 21. All right. We'll go back to Numbers 21, 4. I can't go through everything. I'm already at 48 minutes, but you're just going to have to bear with me. I'm going to I'm going to try to bring this to a, a dramatic conclusion here and hopefully when I'm done, everyone's going to be like, "Ah, that makes sense." All right, here we go. Numbers 21:4. Speaking of Israel, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. So they're in this difficult situation. They become discouraged. They start becoming frustrated. All right. Now, verse five. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore, having you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our souls loatheth, loatheth this light bread. Hey, did you just bring us out here to die? We're tired of this. We're, did, we're tired of the, the provision. We're tired of your direction. We're just frustrated. Now, in other words, their circumstance becomes a temptation. They're enticed now to speak against God. They're enticed to show their displeasure and grumbling. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. So they fall into sin. They fall into sin. So what can they do? What, what is their only solution? Has God got a way of escape? How are they going to be able to bear this? How are they going to be able to endure this? Well, they look to God. They look to God and then look what happens. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bidden when he looketh upon it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Here they are. They're tempted. 
They fall, but they have a way of escape. They, they have something they can do. They look to God by faith and they look to him. And guess what? There is escape. They can endure it. They can handle it because God provides a way of escape for them. There is hope. There is a solution in the midst of it. There is the temptation. There is failure. There is sin, but there is a way. There is escape. And that is looking to him in faith. Let's let's look at the next one. Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians 10, go back to 1 Corinthians 10, because I want to make sure I read this. I'm trying to hurry. 1 Corinthians 10. You'll see what happens here. All right. Right, so we have the serpents, verse 10. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. All right, so something, so they have the serpent situation, but we see God is faithful. He provides a way of escape. He provides a way for them to bear it. And all that they have to do is look to God. They have to just look to God in faith. Now here we have another, they murmur and now they're going to be destroyed. This seems to be a reference to Numbers chapter 16. This seems to be a reference to Numbers chapter 16, verses 32 to 35. I'll just read from one commentary and what and from 1 Corinthians 10, and this is what they say this is referring to here, all right? The fourth, or it says, uh, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. After Korah, Dathan, uh, Abiram, and their fellow rebels were destroyed by the Lord, uh, Numbers 16, 32 to 35. All the congregations of the son of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. God was incensed at their complaints about divine justice. And he immediately sent a plague that killed 14,700 people. There is destruction. There is judgment. Once again, they're, they're in a situation. They don't like it. They're being tempted. They fall into sin. All right. And you can read about it. In Numbers chapter 16, starting in verse 32. And it came to pass as he had made an end of speaking all these words that the ground clave asunder uh, that was under them and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in the house and all the men that uh, uh, appertained unto Korah and all their goods, they all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit. So there's this judgment that comes upon them. There's this destruction that comes upon them. Then they begin to get upset. They begin to get, uh, and, 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 and in fact, if you look at verse 35, there came a fire from the Lord and consumed 250 men. And the Lord spoke unto Moses saying, speak to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning and scatter about fire yonder, for they are hallowed. The censers of these sinners against their own souls. Let them make broad plates for a covering of the altar, but they offered them before the Lord. Therefore they are hallowed and they shall be assigned unto the children of Israel. And Eleazar the priest took a, a brazen censers wherewith they were burnt and uh, covered and they were made broad plates for a covering of the altar. All right. So you see that there, there's this judgment. There's this destruction. Now look what happens. Verse 44. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, get you up from among the congregation that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. 
right? So, so the people, they're, they're still committing sin. They're murmuring. If you go back to verse 41, they're murmuring. This is all in Numbers chapter 16. The people are murmuring. They're complaining. They're upset with, in a sense, God's justice. They're mad. They're angry. So God's going to destroy them. Moses said unto Aaron, take a censer, put fire therein from off the altar, put on incense, go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron took, a, uh, took Moses, uh, and Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put an incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. Now they, they that died in the plague were 14,700 besides them that died in the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and the plague was stayed. Now we have two historical examples. There's temptation their sin, they fall, but guess what? There is, a, a, listen, there's an ability to escape and to bear it. And that ability is looking to the provision God makes to save them from it. One, there's a, a serpent on a pole. They look to that and they'll live. The other one, an atonement is made for them. That atonement stands between them and death. They look to God in faith. They can escape the judgment and endure and bear the temptation and the results of that temptation by not looking to themselves, but looking to God who is faithful. Our ability when we are tempted is to look to God because when we are tempted, we may fall, we may sin, but we look to God who will help us escape and we escape through the provision that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. I know you, you may still be questioning this. You still may not like my solution. Just let's continue looking at some other scriptures here, all right? Because we got those serpents, right? We got the destroyer. Look at John chapter three, verse 14, all right? John chapter three, verse 14. Because now it takes one of these stories and brings it over, well, into a, a situation that's very applicable to us. John chapter three, verse 12. If I told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What we do is we look to Christ. What we do is we look to Christ and we will not perish no matter how bad the temptation is. We can escape the temptation and it's and all the pain and suffering and destruction it may be and we can endure it because we have forgiveness and atonement in Jesus Christ. We have an atonement. We have, we, have, we have salvation in Jesus Christ. By faith, his righteousness is imputed to my account. So when I am facing temptation, I, as a Christian, because that 1 Corinthians 10 is written to Christian, I have the ability, obviously as a Christian, to look to God in faith 
in the midst of that temptation, knowing that he is faithful and that he has provided a perfect righteousness to me so that even if I sin, I cannot be destroyed. I cannot end up losing my salvation because nothing can separate me from the, from the love of God. Nothing. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who saves because I am clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is what I can, my only hope to bear it, my only hope to escape it, my only hope to endure it is by looking to him in faith who will save me and keep me in the midst of it, even if I sin, which there is some probability that I will. We look to faith. We look to Christ by faith. We are able to escape and bear it in Christ. We have salvation. We have forgiveness. Look at Romans 8, 28, the same concept. Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. All right. Now this demonstrates God works in and through everything. No matter what temptation, God is in charge. God is in control of it all. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called. And whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for all us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. What I look to in the middle of temptation is I look to the God who justifies me. I am justified because of an imputed righteousness that I receive by faith. So I can endure the temptation. I can bear under it that no matter what happens, God is faithful. God will keep me. I cannot be lost because by looking to Christ, I cannot perish. I have eternal life. And then it goes on to say, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather he is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Uh, Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword? That is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loves us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things at present, nor things to come, uh, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, I look to him by faith. I can escape and I can bear whatever temptation because no temptation can destroy me. No sin can destroy me. No sin can separate me from God because I am kept perfect in the perfect righteousness of Christ that I receive by faith by looking to him. That's the only way to understand this because look, the, 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 the verses preceding this is Israel, they sin and what's their way of escape? A serpent, atonement, all right? Hey guys, the same is true of you. First, all the people in the church of Corinth, you've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned. All of this, all the temptations, they're common. But guess what you can do? You can look to Christ in faith. 
He will give you a way of escape. His shed blood, his forgiveness. You can bear that temptation knowing that you can look to Christ for that salvation, looking to him. Let me add a little bit more here. Two more verses. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I think that's perfect because in 1 Corinthians 10, it starts with a great cloud of witnesses. There's Israel. Israel Israel's your great cloud of witnesses. And remember, everything's written about them to be an example to us. They're t- they were tempted just like we were tempted, yet when they fell, they were able to bear, escape, and endure because of, well, God provides, God is faithful. He provides them something in the midst of that temptation and that trial and that struggle, right? Let us lay aside every weight which so easily besets us, right? And, and let us, uh, and this, uh, let, me go, let us lay, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. We are, we are to strive. We are to run the Christian life. But what do we do? We look unto Jesus. That's who we look to. We look unto Jesus by faith, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Now, we have to remember, we look to Jesus. That's who we look to. That is your escape. That's how you're able. That's how you're able to endure it. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you can can just never sin, that you can stop sinning. You're going to sin. So your hope, your ability is looking to him in faith. Your escape is his salvation. His Christ lifted up on the cross, looking to the cross. His atonement, that is your escape. That is your, and you endure it by looking to him because guess what? He keeps you. He is the author and he is the finisher of your faith. He suffered, he endured. Think about it this way. And this is very important. And every, in fact, I think I have the scripture written down. I think it's Hebrews 4.15. Okay, Hebrews 4.15. This is so very important. Hebrews 4.15. For we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Our hope and temptation is, yes, the temptation that we experience is common to all people and we sin, but we have a high priest who our temptations are common to him as well because he was tempted every way that we are, yet he was without sin. So what can I do? I look to Christ. He is the serpent high lifted up. He is the atonement that stands between death and between death and life. He's the atonement that stands between sin and forgiveness. He is the atonement. 
He is the atonement. He is the serpent. He is the high priest. He is the author and finisher of our faith. So in temptation, I look to him. He endured. He suffered. He strove against sin. He was perfect. I look to him and by faith, guess what? His perfection, his obedience, him resisting temptation because he never sinned. All of that is imputed to my account. So in Christ, I don't sin. In Christ, I have a perfect escape. In Christ, I can endure it because even if I do sin, there's no excuse. There's no excusing that sin. But in my position, I don't sin. In my position, I am perfect. In my position, I have the endurance of Christ. That's the only solution here. Now, we could go back to Hebrews 12, and this is important. God will also bring chastisement into our life when we sin. Now, that also helps us escape sin and helps us ultimately move away from sin. So he will bring chastisement and he's also given us his word that God's word, if we if we are sanctified by his word, which separ- se- separates us from sin. And as we hide God's word in our heart, that helps us keep us from sin. He's given us his word. So he's given us these other things to help us stay away from it. But the real way of bearing it, the real way of enduring it, the real way of escaping it is not something we do to stop sinning because the context shows all the people who sinned. We're tempted like they are. What we do is we look to Christ. Nothing can, listen, we cannot perish because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot, nothing can separate us from God. All of the sin in the world cannot separate us from God. When we are sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's an escape. There is forgiveness. Not only that, there is an escape in the fact that all of his perfect righteousness is imputed to our account. We stand perfectly forgiven. We stand perfectly obedient. So we can endure that temptation knowing that no matter what happens, I'm still victorious. I'm still more than a conqueror. Even when I sin, I'm still more than a conqueror in my position. Now, yes, we strive against it. We have to fight against it, but we're going to fall short one way. Sooner or later, we're going to fall short. That's the only way to understand 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's the only way. It's the only way to understand it. I, 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 cannot, I cannot express that enough, right? And I'm going to look up one more verse here because I didn't even think about it. All right, hang on. One second. All right, let's see here. I think there's, uh, maybe there's some some very specific verses here. Give me here. Let me see here. Um, I don't know if it uses the exact words here. May not use the exact words. Hang on. Give me one second. Um, you look here. Because I think it would be it would be perfect if we have the word used, and I don't know. The concepts is all over the place. I just don't know if the actual word is used. But I will, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to 1 Corinthians 10 really quick here. 
Yeah, I'll have to do. There's all kinds of verses I could use that would give the idea and that I could prove it, but I was looking for one that would uh, just really just prove the point once and for all. I had to see those verses would, those, those, those would help us, but it's not perfect. Yeah, we, I would have to. I would have to do a little bit more teaching to to kind of unwrap the idea and prove it. But I'll just present it to you so that you can see this. Okay, I've already hinted at it, but I just want you to see it. Okay, um, because now I'm looking at time. I don't have time to really unpack it the way that I want to. But you, you'll see the idea. All right. So here's my here's here's my thinking. I'll summarize it this way. First Corinthians ten thirteen seems to be implying that hey. Now that you're a Christian, whenever temptation comes into your life, you have the ability to say no to it. He's going to give you an escape. You can endure it and you don't have to sin. The only problem is reality contradicts that over and over and over. Not only does reality, the very, the very context in which the verse is, is given, because it's written to a church of Corinth where the, all the people doing in that church is sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. There's more sin problems in that church than you can even count. So right there already makes you go, is Paul saying, hey guys, you don't have to sin, just stop sinning. That that's, just doesn't seem to work in, in, in the context of the letter because he's gonna go on and write more and more and more, more about their sin. So, so that doesn't seem to work. Paul himself is gonna say, the things I wanna do, I can't do, I don't do, and the things I don't wanna do, those are the things I do. He's even gonna say that about himself. So there's just too many verses that just that, 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 that understanding doesn't work. So it, se- so it seems to be saying something that the context right there, uh, uh, the context of the book doesn't even just doesn't even seem to 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 equal or or to it seems to contradict even the principles that we see throughout the whole bible people sin even in the immediate context it mentions israel and it shows you them sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning right so we have all the biblical proof around us that this can't seem to be implying that you just have the ability to stop sinning because everyone in the bible continues to sin right even the immediate context shows israel sinning and then you've got the reality of what you've experienced in your own life. But what's interesting is in this context, and I would have to go back and work on uh, verse eight, but clearly in verse nine and 10, the reason I went to these immediately is because it says, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. That gives us a very clear historical example of what we're talking about. There was a temptation they sinned, but by faith, they looked to the serpent that was lifted up on a pole. And if they were bit, they lived. There was a way to escape. They were able to endure it. They were able to bear it. The hope, the escape was in the salvation provided by God. The New Testament takes that example, Jesus himself, and says, that's, the situ- that's what you do. You look to me for salvation and you will not perish. We look to Christ for our initial salvation and we look to Christ as Christians whenever we are tempted because we are saved and we can endure and we can escape even if we sin. Doesn't mean we should, but no matter what happens, we look to him because we will not perish. We we are completely forgiven, right? Then in the next verse, it speaks of the destroyer destroying people because they murmured. Well, we know exactly what happened, right? We know exactly what happened. 
They were, they, 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 they were basically rejecting God's justice. They were murmuring. They were complaining. They were upset. And a plague breaks out and atonement is made. Well, if you take the idea of an atonement, the atonement is all throughout the New Testament, right? The concept is there. Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price, bought you and saved you. He saved you from the plague of that temptation. So you are kept from it. You can endure it. You can escape it, but it's by faith. It's by faith. We look to Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. We look to him. He was tempted in all points, yet he was without sin. So whatever temptation I experience in Christ, he was tempted and he obeyed it. So my escape is looking to him because in Christ, I've escaped that temptation. In Christ, I did not sin. In Christ, I was obedient because in Christ, I am perfectly obedient and perfectly righteous because all of that's been accredited to my account. His obedience, him not sinning with all of those temptations is the reality of me and my position. And I think it's very interesting that the warning here is, hey guys, be careful thinking that you you can't fall because you can end up falling as well because we're going to sin. So our only hope is Christ. It's not in our ability to be perfect. There we go. Now, nobody asked any questions. No one posted any objections. Either one, they don't understand anything I just said. <laughs> They're confused. Or two, they're sitting there just like, oh, wow, that was awesome. I don't even know what to say. I'm going to go with that. Okay. All right. Not because I, I did a great job teaching it, but because I, hopefully they've never considered what was just presented to them. Now, I know many passages will go with your ability, your ability, your ability. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. But Many of them will say, you can do it. However, you can't do it perfectly. You can do it, but you're still going to sin. You can do it. but And it's like, well, that doesn't even make any sense. No, no, I, there, it's got to be talking about something deeper there. And I think I've tried my best to provide information about that particular thing. In fact, I'm going to look in this commentary here to the, to the sin that happened before them. Let's see. Um, This seems to be a reference to, uh, okay, neither let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. The incident to which Paul refers to is recorded in Numbers. While in the wilderness, the people begin to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people uh, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. They say uh, Numbers chapter 25. They say Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25. I'm just curious. It'd be awesome if this uh, proves to be true one more time. Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25. All right. Uh, God's plague. All right. Uh, And the Lord said unto Moses, take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, slay ye every one his men that were joined, okay? And behold, one of the children of Israel 
and brought unto his brethren. Okay, there's like, yeah, there's going to be a lot of death here and destruction. And, uh, and you can read exactly. So in a roundabout way, in a roundabout way, it's not a, it's not a pretty sight. You can read everything that takes place here. Um, a 20 and 4,000 die in the plague, but in a roundabout way, God does again, provide them a way of escape. He does provide a way for it to stop. So once again, the solution is found in God. There's still judgment. There's still pain and suffering, right? That's happening in a very temporal earthly way. For us, we still may face chastisement from God in the earthly way. We still may experience that, which is another way to help us in dealing with temptation, right? But the ultimate solution for us is at in Christ. That's our true escape. And that's how we truly bear it and endure it because it's in Christ, because Christ keeps all of it for, for us. And that's where, that's where our solution can be found. All right. So in all, in all the three Old Testament examples provided, there is temptation, there is sin, there is judgment, but in all of them, there is a way of escape provided, no matter how ugly it may be. There's a, God find, gives them a way to stop it. So, that, so then in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, why wouldn't we understand that the exact same way? But we don't look to those Old Testament examples of people dying or, or a serpent or, or all the... No, we look to Christ. And in a sense, think of it. Death was required to stop the plague. Jesus died for us, right? The serpent had to be lifted up and they had to look to the serpent. Christ was lifted up on the cross. We looked to him. Atonement was made and Christ is our atonement. We, we could really even flesh that out a little more in which we may have to soon. We may have to soon. Um, and what we'll, we'll do, we'll, well, trust me, we'll do even, uh, now that I'm thinking about, there's, I could really do some work on this to really flesh it out even more. But I wanted to at least get you going in the right direction. Remember, Bible study exercise. It's not, it wasn't even supposed to be about me teaching it. It's supposed to be about me working my way through it. And then later on, I may teach it in a much more, precise way, but I at least wanted to get you going in the right direction. I'm sorry we went an hour and 21 minutes, but there's no way to cover all of that in an easy way. But I, I hope that helps you more. I think, I, think we, I think we're right on the edge of even a better understanding of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I really do. I think I, 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 I kind of I hinted at some things, but I think I've given you enough that if you really start working on this, you can flesh it out even more. I think I've kind of just given you everything you need, but uh, if you're not convinced yet, the next maybe next Sunday at Victory Baptist Church, we'll do we'll use it for uh, we'll use it for uh, one of the messages. We'll use it for one of the messages. Maybe the Sunday school hour. Maybe we'll do it for the Sunday school hour because I really want to drive this point home and make sure that everyone understands it. All right, I'll stop right there. Thanks for listening. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, God bless.